So unless you've had your head in the, head in the sand, it's obviously been the uh, little election this last week. And um, I've come to the conclusion that to be a politician must be really difficult. All right, Vikian? Like, like, can be incredibly difficult because I think you're getting like, for all the compliments and nice things that people say, you're going to get hate mail, you're going to get tweets, like whether you're Conservative, Labour, Lib Dem, Lord Buckethead, whoever you are, you're going to get a bit of flack, I think. And I think actually a bit of kind of too those that are standing, you know, as Christians, we want to kind of be encouraging and speak well. I just think some of the stuff that we've seen over the last couple of weeks has just been really unhelpful in like knocking down and destroying. And I think as Christians, we've got to have a, you know, a higher standard. And um, one of the things that was said over the last couple of weeks, which was designed to trip up our PM, was asking her what the naughtiest thing she's ever done was. I don't know if you caught that. Um, she was asked what the naughtiest thing she's ever done was, and she kind of, obviously she probably couldn't tell you what the naughtiest thing she's ever done was, because that would make front pages on the tabloids. So instead she said when she was younger, she used to run through the cornfields, and it used to really annoy the farmer, which I thought was mildly amusing. And then I turned to Matthew 12, which is what we're looking at this morning. And Jesus and his disciples are going through the grain field. And I thought, wow, Teresa amazing, good company. Like upsetting the Pharisees, everyone's upset with her. And that's what happens in today's story. Um, Jesus and his disciples get in trouble for going through a grain field. Maybe she knew that when she shared it, I don't know. Let me read it to you, Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields. Come on. On the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. That is unbelievable behavior, that, eating when you're hungry. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look at what your disciples are doing. What is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? That's King David. And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what that means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then it says... Jesus went on from there, and he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they're trying to, like, mess Jesus up here. They're trying to do him over. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, they ask, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, which of you, if you've got a sheep, if it falls in a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. If you get the gravity of what's going on here, Jesus has walked through a grain field. His disciples have eaten some, you know, prepared some stuff to make some food. He's then healed someone and then Pharisees want to kill him. It's mad. It's absolutely mad. And we'll get to kind of actually how that happens. The Pharisees 
are kind of like laymen of the day, if you like. They're not the kind of upper echelons, but they're like wannabes, if you like. And they've got a bit of theological nous and a bit of theological training. And they'd be connected to like a particular synagogue. It would be like, this is my pad. This is where I do ministry out of. These are my people. And they would serve and they would do some stuff and they would make themselves busy. But they'd be characterized by having lots of rules and laws. That's how you'd know someone was a Pharisee. They'd have a rule about everything. The kind of people that, you know, that have a rule of if I'm not up at 8.17 and I get up at 8.18, the day's a disaster because I've, I've, I've missed my time slot. Everything is like rules, everything regulated, really kind of oppressive. They were the Pharisees. And the controversy that's kind of stirred up here is all about something called the Sabbath, which I suppose in our kind of modern culture isn't something that gets talked about an awful lot. It's one of the Ten Commandments, but of the ten, it's probably the one that we kind of like poo-poo a little bit. You know, oh, I get the don't murder, or don't commit adultery, or don't covet stuff, but... Keeping the Sabbath? Not too sure on that, but it's, it means a day of rest, a day off work. So before I get into why Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus over some grain and healing someone, because it seems a bit mad, I just wanna, I've got a few kind of thoughts, so we'll just go through the passage and see where we wind up. Um, I just want to say before we start that the Sabbath is a good thing, and the Sabbath is something that we need to keep today. It's not something that's been revoked, it's not something that's been rolled, va- rolled back. Um, But it's the principle of Sabbath as opposed to how the Pharisees here are enacting it. Because it's an instruction from God. I want you to think, when you think Sabbath, I want you to think an instruction from God to rest. That's what he's saying. I want you to have a rest. I want you to have a break. I want you to take a day off. Who thinks that's a bad idea? Anybody? No, that's good because you'd be disagreeing with God if you did. Uh, But like God says, it's good for you to work And it's good for you to rest. Um, You know what happens if you don't take days off and you just work relentlessly? You burn out, don't you? You end up like wrecking yourself. You, You don't take those moments to stop and pause and think and you just go and go and go and go. Sabbath is a good thing. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the hosts of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work. Now whether it's a literal day or a period of time, don't get hung up on that. The point is this, after God had finished what he was doing, he rested. Now, God wasn't tired. God wasn't weary. God didn't need a break. But it's the principle. He's setting what it looks like for us. And what it actually looks like for us is work six days and rest one. That's what the Bible says. Our culture's got it of work as little as you can for as much as you can and then rest two. But Jesus here, the Bible, the Sabbath, the the thing that God says is work six, rest one. Um... That seems to be the way that it's put. And then rest is important. And then in Exodus 20, it becomes one of the commandments. And this is how it describes it. It says, on that day, the Sabbath, you won't do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, your foreigner. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in it. And on the seventh, he rested. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So it's rest for more than just yourself. It's rest for your family, rest for your livestock, if you've got livestock. And it means, it doesn't mean do nothing, but it means whatever you do most of the time. So if you're a traffic warden and that's what you're doing, you're nine to five, just a way to make a living, don't do it one day a week. Have a rest from winding people up with tickets. In fact, have seven days rest with that vocation. Like, 
don't do it all the time, is the instruction here. Your labor, what you're doing, take a rest. Take a break from what you're doing normally. And that break is to, as Jesus and his disciples here, they're on the way to synagogue. So it's a rest day to enjoy God. A rest day to enjoy his creation. A rest day to enjoy his blessing and to be with his people and to hang out with the family. To be blessed, to be a blessing. Doesn't that sound amazing? Am I selling the Sabbath to you? You can do your washing. You can do your cleaning. That's okay. You can do stuff. It's not I've got to sit on my couch all day and watch Formula One. As, ap- as appealing as that is. There's other, you know, I can do stuff. I can help around the house. I can do things. You'd think it would be really simple. But religion and a religious spirit tends to corrupt and ruin everything. Did you know that the Pharisees, for the day of rest, can anybody guess how many rules they had for how to take a rest day? Come on, somebody guess. It wasn't rhetorical. Five, no, we're higher than, we're not 100. Come on, man, that would be impossible. 39. They had 39 rules on how to have a rest. And you think, oh, man, it's just made it stressful straight away. Trying to have a rest day but keep 39 rules, that's difficult, right? And that's why they're upset with Jesus and his disciples here. Is not because they've done anything wrong before God, but they've broken their rules. Their own little rules of faith, their own little traditions, their own little things that they've kind of added in. And they've, they've said, this is the law, this is the rules now. And so when I talk about religion ruining everything, I mean it. Actually, when I, when I talk about religion, I'm meaning extra rules, I'm meaning legalism, I'm meaning something that's oppressive. You know, people say to me, I'm religious, and I kind of think, actually, I'm not. I've got a relationship with Jesus, and it's about my faith in him. I'm not about a million and one rules of what it's got to look like and what it's not got to look like, and adding things. It's almost like what they're doing here is you've got the spiritual tick boxes, or as one preacher put it, spiritual paint by numbers. That you've got right, you've got to paint number one green, you've got to paint number two red so that everybody looks the same and everybody's exactly the same all the time. But none of it's in the Bible. Like these 39 rules, nowhere in the Bible of these 39 rules does it say, don't do these things. They've just been added on by the Pharisees. And uh, I think it was Martin Luther, the great reformer, said religion is the default mode of the human heart. It's where we tend to go to, to try and put rules in and try and put things in to help our understanding or things that we like and we make it the law and the rule and we end up with this kind of oppressive religious spirit. You know, like where you feel like you have to do something? I don't know if you've ever had that. I I grew up in, um, well, a number of churches and I remember doing... um, I must have been in my early 20s now and I was connected to an Anglican school so I was at this fancy thing with a bishop and I think I've said this before, I had to carry a stick, I don't think it's called a stick but that's what I'm going to call it, I had to carry a stick and um, basically I got told I had to do it in a certain way and that I was, you know, I was walking wrong down the aisle and I was just not, I wasn't, you know, my spacing wasn't right and my timing wasn't right and I had to stand at the front with a stick the whole time and I thought, There's a difference between me having to do this and wanting to do it, right? You see what I'm saying there? Like, if I wanted to do this, this would be a joyous occasion of stick holding. But I actually don't want to do it. I'm having to do it. And sometimes in our faith journey, and sometimes we think, oh, I feel like I have to do something. 
Like, something can be so oppressive. It's like, oh, I have to do this. I have to give my money away. I have to read my Bible every day. Now, actually, they're good things that we should do. But actually, I want you to want to do them as opposed to feeling like you're oppressed with having to. Why should we want to do it? Because of Jesus. Why should we want to do it? Because that's what he asks of us to do. Not what man asks us to do. There's a difference between what man asks us to do and what God asks us to do. We want to read the word of God, don't we? Because it's the word of God. It can impact our hearts. It can change our lives. But we don't want a kind of paint-by-numbers system for everything that we're doing. We don't want all these extra rules and regulations of things we can and can't do that are put on top. And we have a choice, I think, uh, not just as a church and as as a church culture, but as as individuals, as going God's way or going man's way. And here you've got this story of Jesus and the disciples who are clearly going God's way and the Pharisees who think they are, but really they're kind of just enforcing their own thing. So the story is Jesus and his mates walking through the field on on the way to synagogue on a Saturday, which is their Sabbath, their day of rest. So for us, I suppose, traditionally, the Lord's Day is the Sunday. It's today, the day of rest. But for them, it would have been a Saturday. And they pick some grain because they're hungry. There's a need, there's hunger. And the Pharisees saw this. Now, I don't know if you get that when you're reading this, that they're walking through the field. I don't know if they're skipping. Maybe they are. It just seems picturesque. But the Pharisees see them, which means the Pharisees are hiding under rocks. Which means the Pharisees are doing this through the, like they're following him. They're waiting for Jesus and the disciples to mess up. They've got a critical spirit before, they're not even giving a chance to Jesus and the disciples. They're skulking behind, waiting for them to fall down. That's the spirit of religion. That's the spirit of oppression. That it's like instead of grace and loving people and forgiving people, it's oppressing people with rules and regulations. They're almost waiting for Jesus and the disciples to mess up. And it's almost like, Jesus, Jesus, look what's going on. Stop, 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 Jesus. Your disciples have taken some grain. Oh my goodness, the world needs to stop right now. They have taken some grain from this farmer's field. They're not bothered that the farmer's going to be a few grain bits short. I don't know if you noticed that. They're bothered that the stuff's been taken and it goes against their rules. And it's the Pharisees' rules. And then, I don't know if you understand the gravity of this, verse 14, because of this, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. It's gone from taking grain to trying to kill somebody. For taking grain. Am I the only one that's outraged at this and thinks it's unbelievable? I'm sensing I am. They want to kill him for taking grain. It's mad, isn't it? It's just ridiculous. And then you think, actually, maybe sometimes you catch yourself, you're angry or you're upset or something, and you pause and you think, hold on, how did I get here? Why am I even angry? Let me take some back steps here. Like, actually, it's quite easy to get there when our rules and our worldview and the things that we want don't happen. We get upset and we hit the nuclear button, which is exactly what the Pharisees do here. They have secret meetings and secret plots to destroy. And they start conspiring of how can we get this how we want it to? How can we make sure that every piece of grain is intact on the Sabbath? Should we put fences around every field? Like you get that kind of the starting to plot and think, how can we do this? They're so bothered about their tradition They don't care that hungry people were fed. 
You see that? The disciples were hungry. They're not bothered that they were fed. And it's so easy in our organized religion and the way that we go through life to be so concerned with our little angle that we forget that there's hungry people that need feeding. We become so caught up in the injustice that the chairs are the wrong color that we forget there's hungry people that need feeding. That there's people that need to hear about Jesus. That there's mission to be done. How do you react? This is a question only you can answer. When you've got these rules, and I'm not saying biblical, biblical no, stuff that's in the Bible, I'm not talking about that, that's good stuff, and I'll get to that. But like your own little rules, how do you cope when they're breached? How do you cope when someone does 20 miles an hour in a 30? When they should be doing 30? How are you coping with that? Are you coping okay? Or are you on the horn? How are you coping when the learner driver is stalled for the fourth time at a junction? Have you turned around already? Quite possibly. Like when your rules are breached, how are we coping? Because it tells you something about your heart. And we have to kind of step back and see a bigger picture. I found these on the internet, and I'm not joking with these because we have to be careful. And I'm saying this in, in, in a way out of love because we've got to be careful for our own traditions as well. But I found some of these on the internet as genuine church rules, okay, that I, I think you'll struggle to find in the Bible, but we'll see. Um, you have to wear a tie to serve communion. So I'm out. Um, pastors and people at the front must be clean shaven. It's going really well so far. Uh, women, you're not allowed to ever get your hair cut. Uh, another one. No movies. No dancing. I'm for that, by the way. That's fine. No dancing. No drinking. I'm assuming that means of alcohol. Otherwise, we're done. No clapping. Or hand raising in case you get too carried away. Hand raisers escorted from the building. And some places will insist on certain translations of the Bible only. Oh, if you're not reading this translation, you've got it wrong. Like, all those things are real. All of them. And you could add your own thing into there. You know, I like these songs that we sing. I don't like those ones. We have to be so careful, don't we? So careful that it's not about our rules. Because actually, as soon as we start making those the big things, we're missing the point about what we're here for as church, that this is a rescue station, that this is for people to meet Jesus. That starts getting shoved to the side. And these, the, all these rules, although they're, they're funny and they're kind of light, like seriously, they happen. And we've got to be careful that actually we don't make them happen here too. That we, anything that we do do, we do because we think it pleases God and we see it in his word. All these things you'll be able to say are extra biblical, if you like. Add in the Bible. And actually, adding to the Bible is just as bad as leaving bits out that you don't like. Like religion or irreligion, both of them are, are not an option. You know, adding things, you know, so, I don't know, an extra chapter of the Bible because you, you like your rules and you like these things that you think have to be adhered to, or removing whole sections of Scripture because it doesn't fit with your world. Both of them aren't options. Both of them are, are as bad as each other. And what we have to take is what we've got given before us by God's grace. And that's, what, that's why it's hard to stick on the narrow path. That's why it's hard to follow. That's why it's hard to navigate because sometimes that presents difficulty for us. Sometimes that prevents thing, presents things that are uncomfortable for us. And we have to kind of navigate those things together and try and please the Lord together and follow after him as faithfully as we can do. And that's why we gather together. That's why church is so important. That's why 
being here today is important because we can help each other stay on that narrow path. We can help each other to not get caught up in our own rules and our own extra stuff and we can get caught up in Jesus instead because the Jesus way is the opposite way to the culture. We know that, don't we? To go the Jesus way is to go the opposite way. That instead of rules and regulation and oppressiveness, it's grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and kindness and generosity. Oh, how different would our nation be if those were the values, right? To follow Christ, I know this might seem schoolboy, but it's to be like Christ. And the Bible is full of instructions for us. You can use the word rules if you want, but it's full of things in there to help us follow Jesus well. That we'd obey God well. You know, we follow Jesus for a reason. There's things Jesus, uh, God puts into the Bible to help us. He says, do not murder. He says, do not commit adultery. He doesn't do that because he wants to spoil our fun. He does it because he knows it wrecks our life. He knows because it will hurt us and hurt other people. And he wants the best for us. And he wants us to follow after him faithfully. He's not being this kind of like God up here that's like, you won't do these things. He's not saying don't get drunk because he's a party pooper. He's saying don't get drunk because you're out of control. And rather the Holy Spirit should be in control of your life. So there's stuff in the Bible that helps us to follow Christ really well. And actually by following his code, by following the Bible, it helps us to live a really liberating life. There's this great illustration that I'm going to nick from Nicky Gumbel. And those of you that are on Alpha, forgive me for this, but he's just very good at illustrations. And he says that when he was, I don't know, it was a few years ago, I think, and uh, he had a kid playing football in London um, at the park, like a, not a full-blown match but like a training session and the coach wasn't there and Nicky Gumbel was like one of the only parents there so he kind of got roped into refereeing and organizing the match but the problem for this guy is he knows nothing about football so he was like you know let's put jumpers down for goalposts but I've got no cones I've got no whistle get yourself into two teams of you know 15 aside or whatever it is he doesn't even know how many play on each team and uh, and then the game starts and uh, there's tackles going in everywhere, he explains. And he's like, well, I don't know if it's a foul or not. I don't know if the ball's gone out of play or not for a throw-in. So play on. And he describes that by the end of this game, as the game's going on, there's like three young boys just on the floor rolling around and the game's just carried on. Because he doesn't know what a foul is. He doesn't know what's right, what's wrong. So he's just carnage. And then the coach turns up and he puts the cones out and he puts proper goals up and he picks two teams and he knows the rules and he's got his whistle. Now, if you were to ask those boys which game was more enjoyable, it would be the actual game where they've got like, from someone who's played a lot of football with jumpers for goalposts, it's much more fun if you've got nets. Like, when there, and they had the rules. They had the regulations, but within that, it was the best for those boys. And it's the same with the Bible. God doesn't say these things because he's trying to wind us up or do us in. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He says, look, these things are here for your good. Because believe it or not, as the creator of the universe, I know better than you. And that's where our faith comes in. And that's where our, actually, is this a God thing or is it a me thing? Is this my rules or is this, is this what God says? And that's the decision, that's the point we have to, to come to. We have to identify what's of God and what's of our own heart. And then once we know that, actually be able to follow after what God says. My uncle tells me this story of, he's a drummer, 
and he says he, he turned up to practice to start drumming for church and he wasn't allowed that Sunday because he was wearing shorts. And um, he got into a bit of a conversation with whoever it was that had said he couldn't drum. And it just makes me think, does, is God bothered? Like, if you're wearing trousers, does God not know there's a knee under here? Like, is it a mystery to God? But then as soon as you put shorts on, he's like, oh my goodness, that guy's got knobbly knees. Well, I don't think that's happening. But there's like man-made rules that are brought in and it's distinguishing what's of God and what's not. And there's this actually, I think this is really helpful. Take your faith and following God seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. I think that's helpful like as a, as a worldview. Take your faith, take the things of God and following after him really seriously because it's a matter of life and death. But don't take yourself too seriously. It's okay to wear shorts and flip-flops. It's okay to wear socks and sandals. I've done it. I mean, albeit just to go to the shop, but I have still done it. I'm becoming that stereotypical Christian. You know the one, beard, bad breath, Bible, yeah. <laughs> Jesus here is trying to make a point about Actually, what, what are we following? Who are we following? And that's the whole thing here. He's drawing out the Pharisees that they've been following their own rules and regulations, which is why he references King David, who would be a great king in their history, and says, look, even the greatest king in all your history ate the bread of the presence when he shouldn't have done. These disciples are okay because they're hungry. There's a necessity for them to eat, and therefore they haven't breached the Sabbath. They're still at rest. They haven't breached it, and that's Jesus' point to them. And then he demonstrates it even further because they rock up to the synagogue, and there's a man there with a withered hand. Now, we don't know how long his hand hasn't been working for. We don't get a description that he's been there for years and years, like other places, but he's got a withered hand. Now, for that guy who's got a withered hand, I'm going to make an assumption. The withered hand is not a good thing. Would that be fair? The withered hand is probably something he doesn't want, Right? that if it could be healed, he'd probably be up for that. And in fact, we know he is because he stretches out his hand in faith. He responds to Jesus. And yet, the Pharisees seem to think it's acceptable here in this story for him to wait till Sunday, or in our case, to wait till Monday for a healing. Oh, it's okay. God will heal you tomorrow. We won't do that today because it's the Sabbath. We don't do nice things to each other on our day of rest. That's actually, if you, if you follow the line of argument from the Pharisees, that is where you end up. And something has to trump, something has to, our man-made rules, something has to go above and beyond that. And I think what Jesus demonstrates here is, above our man-made rules that we have in our own heart and other people have, love has to go beyond that. We have to love people relentlessly beyond that. And sometimes through that and in that, but beyond it. That's what Jesus does here. He doesn't stop because of the man-made rules. He loves on purpose. Religion here makes us unloving and uncaring. It makes the Pharisees harsh. You can wait till tomorrow to get healed, mate. You don't need your withered hand on the Sabbath anyway. That must be their reasoning. But it's madness. And Jesus here is like, no, I'm going to get on with it. But we've got to be careful. And I've put this note to myself as much as anything. I've just seen it in brackets. It says, we've got to be careful that we don't become the anti-Pharisee Pharisee. Does that make sense? 
the Pharisees are like with all their rules. We're like, look at them with all their rules. I'm not like them. I've got my own rules secretly. Psalm 139, an amazing passage all about how we're created, that God knows us better. Interesting that it finishes with a sentence about God, see if there be any grievous way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. This great passage about how we're created and God obviously knows our own hearts and the psalmist says, see if there's any grievous way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a moment to actually check ourselves before God and that's a constant thing to do. And another side point here, um, the guy with the withered hand is healed on the Sabbath. Um, sometimes, you know, I wonder if this was the case with the Pharisees. Like the guy with the withered hand, they're just like, well, that's, that's just his reality. That's his new normal. He'll just put up with it. That's okay, Jesus. Don't worry about it. Don't bother with that today. You know, if there's some people here that are sick, carrying illness, let's pray about it. Let's ask God to heal you. Let's not just put it off. Let's not just categorize it as, oh, you know what? It's all right. I'll live with that. Because I think here there's, a, there's a, a message here to stretch out in faith. And when we stretch out in faith, God does amazing things. Jesus here says, if a sheep falls into a pit, do you just leave it? To the Pharisees, he's trying to draw out the ridiculousness of their argument. If a sheep falls into a pit, would you just leave it? Well, unless you didn't like sheep, you'd probably rescue it and get it out. And the Pharisees would rescue a sheep on the Sabbath because they'd say it's life and death. And then Jesus says, okay, well, a sheep is, you've got your sheep. How much more important is a human being than a sheep? And you can imagine the Pharisees like, um, yeah, probably more important than a sheep. So if there's someone with a withered hand, we should heal them on the Sabbath. And that's taking note of the fact that sheep are fluffy, sheep are great, everyone likes sheep, they don't seem to do anything wrong. And humans, we get things wrong all the time. And despite all that, despite the things that we get wrong, we're still of more value than a sheep. Yes, you, here today, every single one of us, Jesus says are of more value worth being rescued, worth being loved. And it's because we have a capacity to know and glorify God. We've got a soul. We're created with a purpose, which is to bring glory to God. We're precious and important to God. And you know what? So's your neighbor, so's your mates, so's your boss, so's the person with all the rules. Precious and loved by God. And this work of showing mercy that Jesus talks about, this work of love is not something we switch off from. You know, if I'm talking about Sabbath is important and resting is important, it's rest from your labor. It's rest from what you would do most of the time at work, you know, on your computer, whatever it might be that you do for a living. We don't rest from loving people. We don't rest from showing grace. We don't rest from being full of words of kindness and full of encouragement, we can't afford to have a day off from those things because so much is at stake. We don't rest from those things. In fact, we're called into the rescuer. Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. A modern interpretation of what he means there is when we're resting, we actually go to Jesus for rest. Jesus equals Sabbath. Jesus equals rest. That would be my theology of the Sabbath now. That we find our rest in him. Not in a building, but in him. And so actually the call here is, find your rest in me. Enjoy me. Spend time with me. Be my hands. Be my feet. Do my work. Even if that's hard. Even if that means putting a shift in. 
you're still finding rest. And it's interesting. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the end of chapter 11 is that really famous passage all about, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. And then the stuff on the Sabbath. Really interesting that. That our rest is found in Jesus. And we have this opportunity, I think, as individuals, but also as a church, that I think religion goes hunting failure. Religion is critical. And religion, in this case, in terms of the Pharisees, as a set of rules, destroys people and knocks people down. But grace says, I love you, and I want you to go again. We've got it wrong, but we'll go again. Because Jesus loves us. And grace, mercy, and it brings us back home. It's that prodigal son thing. The father could have listed a bunch of rules. But you know what he does? He runs out and he grabs his son and he says, welcome home. That's what grace looks like. Religion would have gone, I told you so. Why didn't you listen to me in the first place? You see, there's a difference there, isn't there? Between a religious spirit and a spirit full of grace. And we have a choice as individuals in a church of which way we're going to go. In such a polarized society... In such a society in the UK now, in, in chaos in some ways, and everyone's got their view, and people are critical depending on which way you vote, I just think, oh, we've got to be, have a higher kind of standard here as Christians. We've got to rise above that nonsense. And we've got to say, actually, I'm living for Jesus here that my standard is higher, that I will speak well, that I will encourage, that I will bless, that I will not curse. I will not knock down, but I will raise up. There is a higher call and a higher level to attain to. And it's not my level. It's not my performance. Don't compare yourself to me. Don't compare yourself to the person next to you, but look to Jesus. He's the hero. He's the one we've got to be like. We have a higher standard, and it's to follow after him wholeheartedly, to know what we're like, You know what we're like in this passage? We're a bit like the sheep in the pit. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to pick him up and rescue him. We don't stop from that realization in our own hearts that we need a rescuer. But also in terms of finding our rest in him, finding our all in him, and then actually sharing him with others who need to know about rescue. Jesus is our place of rest, which for us means... Dedicating our time, dedicating our energy, setting apart some time, setting apart some stuff in order to enjoy God and be at rest. To stop working and to rest in him. Because I think otherwise we end up trying to work to be right with God all the time. Relentlessly we'll be working to get right with God. If I do this, if I do this, if I do this, if I paint this number, if I paint this number, if I paint this number, I'll get right with God. No, just trust Jesus and you'll be right with God. We can throw out the paint by numbers of religion and all that it offers and we can rest in Jesus. So this is my final thing for us all. Stop trying to tick boxes and work to be right with God when Jesus has made you right with God completely. Your work is to go to Christ. That's, that's what we've got to do. Our work is to go to the one who has made us right, to rest in him. Whatever we've done, however we feel, whether we feel unworthy of that, 
whether we, we feel we can't do that because there's so much stuff going on in our life. Jesus invites us in 11 to come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And here in 12, we've got the same thing going on. Actually, come to Jesus, he'll give you rest. All your troubles, they won't necessarily disappear, but you'll find rest for your soul in Jesus.